You can support the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. by purchasing a cell phone case from Crossway, crossweh.com slash LPR. You'll find cell phone cases for Issues Etc., Lutheran Public Radio, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, and Luther's Seal with the Reformation Solas, crossweh.com slash LPR. A percentage of your purchase will support Issues Etc., Cross weh.com slash LPR. If you don't understand the changes that happen in the world, then you're not going to be able to make sense of what you see around you. And again, you might actually disadvantage yourself by taking actions that 20, 30 years ago would have been no big deal, but today might destroy your life. If the body doesn't correspond to one's self-understanding, then it's the body that's changed to match what one wills or what imagines one's mind, rather than the mind changing to match the body. That's a gender paradigm, and that's opposed to the genesis or the biblical paradigm, which honors nature, because it also recognizes biological reality. People should not talk about Bible prophecy being fulfilled today. These ancient people groups are not around anymore. They're long gone. It just so happens that other people live in the same territory. Just like every Christian needs a church, Every Christian needs a pastor. That's how the Lord has arranged it. And this, it's between me and the Lord, is a way of kind of cutting off both of those directions, the, the, the vertical and the horizontal fellowship that the Lord wants to put us in. Topics you can really sink your teeth into. That's why Iowa dentists love issues, etc. William Shakespeare once wrote, be not afraid of greatness. Some are born great, some achieve greatness, and others have greatness thrust upon them. Should greatness be a goal for the Christian? Welcome back to Issues Etc., coming to you live from the studios of Lutheran Public Radio in Collinsville, Illinois. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. It's time for This Week in Pop Christianity. Today, megachurch pastor Troy Gramling on the importance of pursuing greatness. Pastor Chris Rosebro joins us. He is pastor of Consfinger Lutheran Church in Oslo, Minnesota, and creator and host of the YouTube channel, Fighting for the Faith. Chris, welcome back. Thanks for having me back, Todd. In evangelicalism, how much is the sermon biblical preaching versus motivational speech? That's a good question. I would note that there are other options aside from motivational speech. But for the most part, we can say the vast majority of preaching that is taking place now in evangelical churches, especially in mega churches, is not biblical preaching. It is not exegetical. It is not, it is not faithful to the biblical text and helping people to rightly understand what the scriptures say. And a large number, a notable number, especially within the mega churches of the sermons are really kind of half baked mediocre TED Talks that are designed to motivate people, and so they generally fit into that category of motivational speaking. And the issue there is is that this is exactly what the Scripture warned us against through the Apostle Paul when he talked about a day would come when people will not endure sound doctrine, but gather to themselves teachers who will tell them what their itching ears want to hear. And so people have abandoned pastors and churches where God's Word is rightly taught, and instead they have flocked to churches where they're basically told you're basically good people and you need to pursue excellence and you need to go and find your destiny and do great things and stuff like this, which appeals to our sinful nature. 
but unfortunately is a complete twisting of God's Word and the exact opposite focus of what Christ would have us look at as Christians. Someone says, how can you say it's not biblical? I, I hear these preachers quote the Bible all the time. <laughs> I would note that uh, in Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, Satan quoted the Bible too. And when he quoted the Bible, he twisted the Bible to make it sound like it was saying something that it wasn't saying. Just because somebody is quoting the Bible doesn't mean that they're quoting the Bible accurately or that they're rightly handling it. And so you have to go and do the work to see if what they're saying is a right handling of God's Word. Who is Troy Gramling? Troy Gramling, oddly enough, he started off as a parking lot attendant at a, a Baptist church down in South Florida, and the pastor there was one of the guys who jumped on to the purpose-driven bandwagon and transitioned his church from being a traditional Baptist church to being a purpose-driven church. Last name of the fellow was Sutherland. When he decided that it was time for him to step away from pastoring that particular church, he turned it into a church and called it Potential Church. He decided that uh, Troy Gramling, this parking lot attendant who really was ambitious and wanted to be a pastor, that he was the right pick to be the lead pastor of Potential Church after Dan Sutherland left. And so for the better part of a decade and a half, Troy Gramling has been the seeker-driven vision-casting leader of Potential Church and has been a regular feature on the podcast of Fighting for the Faith because he's never been qualified to be a pastor. He doesn't know how to rightly handle God's Word. And as an ambitious parking lot attendant, he did not go to seminary and rightly learn how to handle God's Word, and it really shows up very prominently in his preaching. I guess, in, in, to put that in context, how many of these guys that you feature on a regular basis on your program, we talk about here on Issues, etc., or girls, we should say, are mm. properly trained to do the task of a pastor, much less a public preacher. I would say that the those who've actually finished seminary and and we're not just gone to Bible college, but actually finished seminary, that number is the smaller number. <laughs> the bigger number among the seeker driven vision casting leaders are people who have never been to seminary never graduated and never have studied and shown themselves approved as somebody who can rightly handle God's Word. And so we, we could talk about the implications of that, but that's a big problem within evangelicalism where they don't look at the biblical standards for what qualifies a pastor to be a pastor. Instead, they look for ambition, somebody who's a, an influencer on social media, who who is able to tell a good story or things like this. And so they have a completely different thing that they look at. But we would argue as Lutherans that many of these uh, vision-casting leaders, they have not received what we call a rite vocatus, you know, a rightly ordered call, because they've never been qualified to be pastors to begin with. Someone says, well, what's the big deal? Jesus' disciples were called as apostles, and they none of them had any formal training. I would challenge the statement. They spent three years with Jesus Christ, traipsing around the Judean wilderness and participating in Jesus' ministry and being trained specifically by Jesus. I would argue that the apostles got better training theologically than, uh, than most seminarians do. And so, you know, the one who says that these fishermen did not receive formal training, they weren't lettered men for sure, but they were taught by Christ for three full years before they were sent off into their apostolic ministry. So what are we going to hear first from Troy Gramling? 
Okay, so this is from a sermon titled, Is Greatness Possible? And this first soundbite is him setting up the foundation for this sermon and him talking about the importance of pursuing greatness. How many times do you think about greatness or when's the last time you thought you could be great? You know, we talked about that a little bit at Christmas. We talked about breaking through. We started a series last week as we go into January, kind of about potential possibilities. When you think about great, great as a mom or a dad, great as a wife or a husband, great as a friend, the, the goat, the greatest of all time. How about as a business leader or maybe in the area of your finances, maybe life in general, just having a great life. We think a lot about failure. We think a lot about when things go wrong, what are we going to do? But I was asking myself this week, when's the last time I believed that I could be great, that you could be great, that you could accomplish greatness. That's why we're doing this series. You know, I went and I looked what were the definition of the word possibility and the word potential. And I put it in your outline. If you're watching it online, you can click. Or if you're here in the house, it's actually up on our app. But Webster says that possibilities is the state or fact of being possible. In other words, something is possible, and then potential means capable of becoming. So what is possible is that you and I having the capacity to become, and Webster didn't fill in the blank, but you and I could, to become what? To become a great leader, a great parent, a great boyfriend, a great college student, a great business leader a great entrepreneur, a great pastor, a great ministry leader. And I thought the best way in which for us to go into this year would be to look at some of the biblical heroes and what can we learn from them so as to become what God has created us to be. So what is he saying there? So it sounds like he's trying to head in a, in a proper direction, but the problem is that he's starting with kind of an abstract concept. And the, the concept is greatness. How can I achieve greatness? And to the, the world trained by the world standards, that means the person who you know makes the hall of fame, the one who is the greatest scorer, the, the person who has the greatest impact, the one who really, really their life really, really is over the top and stands head and, head and shoulders above everybody else's. And that is not the pursuit of Christians. Now, granted, we are called as Christians to be great husbands and wives, but great would then work from the idea of what is greatness. And for the Christian, greatness is not determined by how the world looks at greatness. And instead, it is defined by how Christ defines it. Christ himself says, whoever humbles himself like a child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And the greatest would be the servant of all in the kingdom of heaven. 
And so when Scripture talks about greatness, it flips things on its head according to the standards of the world, where the standards of the world, it's the mighty, it's the powerful, it's the ambitious, it's the people who go and really strive to make a name for themselves, that those are the ones who climb to the top. But in the kingdom of God, it's the meek and the humble and those who mourn and those who are poor who are counted by God as great. And so the problem that he's done here in the setup of this is that he has not given us a biblical concept of how God defines greatness, and instead he's still working with the world's definition of greatness, and that means he's already heading in the wrong direction. Does this go hand in hand with, what's your, the phrase you use, it's something like a, a dream thingy. Yeah, the dream destiny thingy. <laughs> yeah, so it, is he working in that context that God has some kind of destiny, and, it, and it's it's going to be, it's always great, it's always world-changing for each and every individual Christian? Yes, that is exactly the category that he's working with. And so you'll hear him talk about this. It gets mentioned several times throughout our sound bites that the idea that God has created us for a specific, unique purpose. And it's supposed to be great. It's supposed to be world-changing and, and all these things. But the problem is, is that it's a twisting of God's Word, and we'll actually hear him twist the text that corrects him in the next soundbite. And that text will be Ephesians 2.10. We'll get to that next. How did God address the Gentile nations through the prophet Isaiah? What is God's message to his own people regarding both judgment and consolation? And how does Isaiah's divine message apply to us today? Find out in the new Concordia Commentary on Isaiah, chapters 13 through 27. Learn more at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February, the Concordia Commentary on Isaiah 13 through 27. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your service. Our church loves and is grateful for those that serve our country. Operation Barnabas, part of Ministry to the Armed Forces, equips you to reach out to veterans in your community to bring Christ to those that served. Call Ministry to the Armed Forces at 314-996-1337 or email lcmschaps at lcms.org. Thank you for your service. Thank you. God bless our military. A voice in the wilderness of American evangelicalism. You're listening to Issues Etc. At Holy Cross Lutheran Church in Rockland, California, we keep the focus on Christ every Sunday with ancient liturgy, preaching from the lectionary, and celebration of the sacrament of the altar. Come be a part of the evangelical and Catholic faith as handed down to us in the Lutheran Confessions. We celebrate the divine service every Sunday at 8 o'clock and 10.30 with Sunday school for all ages at 9.15. To learn more, visit holycrossrockland.org. Memoria Press's award-winning Latin programs have successfully taught hundreds of thousands of students across the world. Their easy-to-use, step-by-step Latin curriculum provides students with an academic vocabulary, a mastery of English grammar, and strong critical thinking skills. If you're interested in learning more, 
visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's This Week in Pop Christianity. Today we're talking about megachurch pastor Troy Grambling on the importance of pursuing greatness. Chris Roseboro of Fighting for the Faith is our guest. Chris, what is next from Troy Grambling? So now he's going to continue to build off of this foundation. And what I really wanted to pay attention to in this next soundbite is how he twists Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, which says, We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. His twist is very subtle, and it fits into the dream destiny thingy. But also look how he references the account of David and Goliath. It's very easy along the way to forget that you're unique, that God created you according to the scripture on purpose to do something of significance, that he actually got involved in your birth with billions of people who have lived on this planet over the years. God knows you. He knows your name. He knows your skills, your gifts, your talents. And not only does he know what they are, he is intentionally knit you together. The Bible says in Ephesians, you're his workmanship to do great things. You're his masterpiece. And so how do we live that out? How do we not give up on that? How do we not ever even attempt to run after that? Because the world continues to tell us that only a few can be great. But the scripture has a completely different idea. And so last week, Tyler talked to us about Daniel and what we can learn from him. Today, I want us to look at David. We'll stay in the D's, okay? And you probably know one of the stories about David. You probably know that he faced a giant. You remember what the giant's name was? Goliath. Almost everybody knows that story. So we're not going to spend a lot of time dealing with the actual battle of the giant because we all have our giants. But what I was thinking about as I studied is I was thinking, what was it that allowed David to take advantage of the opportunity that the giant presented? Because there were thousands of men there fighting, and yet there was only one who saw an opportunity. And when David defeated the giant, it changed his life in every way. And so what was it that made David unique? I put in your outline, David wasn't perfect. If you read his story, he made some mistakes. So this is not about perfection. God can use us to accomplish our destiny even though we're not perfect, and even though we miss the mark, and even though we screw up. David wasn't perfect, but the scripture does tell us he was great. In Acts chapter 13, God says, I have found David, the son of Jesse, who is what? He's a man after my own heart. He's great. Not perfect, but he is great. So Chris, what did he do wrong there? A lot. (laughs) So we'll note that he is assuming the dream destiny thingy doctrine, where this idea is, is that God has created each of us for a unique, world-changing, great purpose. And he twisted Ephesians 2, verse 10, when the way he quoted says, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for greatness. 
But that is not what the text says. It says in Ephesians 2.10, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And works, ergois, there in the Greek, it's a plural. We are not created in Christ Jesus for greatness. We are not created in Christ Jesus for a specific purpose. We are created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which means that other passages like the end of Ephesians and, and the end of other epistles are in play, which define what our good works are. Good works are done by us in our vocations that God has put us into as husband and wife, as father and mother, as child, as employer and employee. And the idea then is, is that we do our good works, which Christ has prepared in advance for us to do in those vocations by loving and serving our neighbor. See second table of the Ten Commandments if you're unsure what that looks like. So what did he do with the, the account of David? <laughs> so he holds up David and Goliath and the, the slaying of Goliath as David saw an opportunity and he seized on it, which then changed his life. That's not what that text is about at all. And then you'll note he kind of subtly hinted at the idea that we all have Goliaths in our life. Here's the problem is that David stands in the Old Testament as one of the archetypical like types and shadows of Jesus Christ. And so many ways, David's life in the types and shadow parallels the life of Jesus and points us to things about Christ's life, especially when we look at David's calling, his anointing in 1 Samuel 16 and the slaying of Goliath in 17. The themes that are going on in those chapters are direct callbacks to the life of Christ. And so David in the types and shadows is pointing us to Jesus. And unfortunately, Troy Gramling doesn't see Jesus in this text at all, or even see that David is a type and shadow of Christ. And instead, he has David being a type and shadow of you. And so the primary assumption is, is that when we look at the heroes of the Old Testament, their lives stand for us as examples for us to follow of people who've gone before us, who recognize that they had a God-given destiny, and then they pursued that destiny and achieved greatness. In some cases, they failed to get that greatness. But the idea then is, is that the Old Testament then, rather than pointing us to Jesus, points us to ourselves, and these people are held up as examples of those who pursued their God-given purpose and either achieved it or failed to achieve it so that we can learn from their mistakes and their successes. You said earlier that these preachers don't do exegesis, which is a interpretation out of the text, and you've coined the term narcissus. What is that? So narcissus is narcissistic eisegesis, and it's this sinful practice of reading yourself into the biblical texts. You're not in the biblical text. The texts are not about you. And so the idea then is narcissistic eisegesis or narcissus is where you take a text, you don't really read it, you just kind of gloss over the, the main points of the story, and then you read yourself into the text as if you were then the hero. 
So it, when it comes to David and Goliath, classic narcissistic eisegesis is to assume you are David. You are going to take the battlefield. And so this is a text to inspire you to pick up your five smooth stones to go slay the Goliaths in your life, the Goliath of debt, the Goliath of insignificance, the Goliath of whatever, right, of badly behaved children. That could be multiple Goliaths. But the point is, is that that's a complete abandoning of what the text really means and what it truly points to. And you've read yourself in as if you're the hero and you're not. These are texts that point us to the hero and the hero is Jesus Christ. Not even David. David says that it was the Lord who won the battle that day against Goliath, not him. And so David doesn't take the credit. He gives the credit to God because he recognizes that what happened was purely by the hand of God, and God is the one who gave the victory. And so I would caution people who want to read themselves into these texts to pay closer attention to the details because even the heroes of old, they all give credit to God, not to themselves. Someone might say, well, come on, Chris. He's just trying to inspire his audience. Inspire me to what? <laughs> to sin against God? I would note that we have a clear text like in Philippians chapter 2. Listen to this text, okay? I want to talk about inspiration. The Apostle Paul, writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit, this is inspired and infallible scripture, says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain glorious conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, and have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was by nature God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the, the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. I would note that Christ stands in direct opposition. His humility, although he is King of kings and Lord of lords, and he comes to earth as a humble servant and in the incarnation, it runs the exact opposite direction of the, the greatness that Satan pursued. In, in Isaiah 14, you have this depiction of Satan saying, I will ascend to the highest height, I will be like the Most High God, and things like this. I would note that inspiring people to seek their own glory and their own greatness is not taught by Scripture to Christians. That is a doctrine of demons, and it is something that Satan himself exemplifies in his own vainglorious pursuit of greatness, greatness to the point of even becoming greater than God and toppling God off of his throne. So pay attention. You know, inspiration can legitimately send you in the wrong direction if it feeds your vainglorious sinful nature. Pastor Chris Roseborough is our guest. More from Troy Grambling on the other side of the break. He tells us about how Moses lost his greatness through impatience. What does it mean to inwardly digest God's Word? Find out in Pastor Will Whedon's column in the latest Issues Etc. journal. We'll send it to you for free. Just click the red journal subscription button in the right-hand column at issuesetc.org. 
In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Dr. John Warwick Montgomery tells his story of finding confessional Lutheranism to be the most scripturally faithful theology. The free online Issues Etc. journal, issuesetc.org. Luther Academy provides additional theological education for our mission partners around the world, specifically pastors who are asking for additional education but do not have the necessary resources in their own church bodies. By donating to Luther Academy today, you will be supplying food, housing, books, professors, and travel for Lutheran pastors who attend our conferences. To learn more about Luther Academy and how you can donate today, visit lutheracademy.com. LutherAcademy.com. Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial A Podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. Our Christian faith is under constant attack, and we must be proactive in keeping our children in the church. At Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, we believe that an education rooted in God's Word is one that stands against the very gates of hell. Nothing in this world is more important. Offering a rigorous classical Lutheran education, we provide in-person and live online remote learning opportunities for preschool through grade 12. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. More topics, more guests, more Jesus. You're listening to Issues Etc. Thanks to the following congregations for standing with us by becoming an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. Advent Lutheran, Zionsville, Indiana. Concordia Lutheran, Sykeston, Missouri, Grace Lutheran, Auburn, Michigan, Emmanuel Lutheran, Everett, Washington, Messiah Lutheran, Grand Rapids, Michigan, Our Savior Lutheran, Ridgecrest, California, Redeemer Lutheran, Los Alamos, New Mexico, St. John Lutheran, New Berlin, Illinois, St. Paul Lutheran, Montevideo, Minnesota, Trinity Lutheran, Okmulgee, Oklahoma, and Zion Lutheran, St. Labore, Nebraska. Find out how your confessional Lutheran church can support this worldwide outreach by including Issues Etc. in your mission or advertising budget. Just go to issuesetc.org, click Support Donate, and print a one-page flyer. When your congregation becomes an Issues Etc. sponsor, we'll publicize your church on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. Verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, verse 4, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. First of all, please note what the suffering is testing, not their strength, not their willpower, not anything like that. Rather, it tests faith. And testing here should be heard in the sense of purifying precious metals. When, because of their faith, they get tossed into the fire of affliction, they don't come out the loser. God works through the fiery trial to strengthen them in their faith and to show them that when they hold tight to Jesus, there's absolutely nothing that they lack. The Christians discover this under the cross. An excerpt from today's episode of The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, a daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study produced by Lutheran Public Radio. 
Pastor Will Whedon began a study today of the book of James. Listen at thewordendures.org, Amazon Alexa, Google Home, Apple HomePod, the LPR mobile app, or a podcast provider. The Word of the Lord Endures Forever with Pastor Will Whedon. It's this week in Pop Christianity. We're walking through some of what megachurch pastor Troy Grambling has to say about the importance of pursuing greatness. Pastor Chris Rosebro is our guest. Chris, what is next from Troy Grambling? So he's now going to take a look at an example of an Old Testament fellow that apparently failed to achieve his greatness because he was impatient, and that is Moses. Impatience destroys greatness. And impatience is the result of insecurity and pride. For example, it happened to Moses. Moses is an incredible leader, and God calls him with the destiny to lead the Israelites out of hundreds of years of slavery, to make a fool basically out of the most powerful nation, uh, or at least one of the most powerful nations in the world at the time. That's Moses. The problem is, is in order to do that, guess what? Moses has got to lead people. Have you ever led people? People are a lot harder to lead than dogs. Right? Because people have their peopleness and their opinions. I mean, it's difficult to lead a child, especially a teenage child, let alone a few million people. And so Moses, it's just like, God, when are we going to get there? These people are driving me crazy. They're always complaining. They want better food. They're thirsty. The first time they get thirsty, God tells Moses to go out and hit the rock and God will produce water with his staff. And Moses does it and water is produced. Well, goodness gracious, they're thirsty again. And Moses is just, oh my gosh. And God tells him this time to talk to the rock. Now, you got to know, right? What would you think? They're going to think I'm crazy. You want me to talk to the rock? And so Moses goes out there and look at what happens in Numbers 20. It says, then Moses raised his hand. He didn't speak to the rock. He struck it twice with his staff and water gushed out. So the people didn't even know that he wasn't, he wasn't doing what God had told him to do. He had grown impatient with God. He had grown impatient with the people. So they got their drink, their livestock got their drinks, but, verse 12 says, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me enough to be patient, to do what I ask, to wait on me, to demonstrate my holiness, there's a reason I ask you to do what I ask you to do in the timing in which I ask you to do it. And he says, you didn't do it. And as a result, you're not going to lead them into the land I'm giving them. In other words, Moses, you were created for this greatness that you're no longer going to be able to experience simply because you became impatient. Okay, did he properly read that account? No, not even close. You'll note that he was not reading from a biblical text. Instead, he paraphrased that account, kind of stuck a few things together, and then when he got to God's voice explaining to Moses what he had done wrong, Troy legitimately added words that are not there, nor are they inferred, nor are they part of the story at all. And he turns this into Moses then doesn't get to go into the promised land. He failed to achieve his greatness. 
as a result of his impatience. And what Troy just did there is blasphemous. I mean, he put words in God's mouth that God didn't speak, and he twisted God's words up so badly that anybody who doesn't go back and fact check the actual biblical texts would then, from that point on, say, well, Moses stands as an example of somebody who didn't achieve his greatness because of his impatience, but that's not what was going on there at all. So explain carefully why God was angry with Moses in that instance. Okay, so this comes back to another point regarding types and shadows, and I would point people to maybe the writings of the church fathers on this, but let me show you a text here. So we'll start with the fact that Moses spoke to the rock. Well, we have a clear interpretation of that given to us by the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ." Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So here we have a New Testament text explaining to us, well, the rock itself that Moses struck was Christ. And you sit there and go, okay, that's all in the types and shadows. This is a spiritual way of looking at this because there's a second layer to the story that again points us to Jesus. If the rock is Christ, then you'll note then that Moses striking the rock and water flowing from it, that is pointing us directly to when Christ's body is hanging dead on the cross and a Roman spear is plunged into his chest cavity and outflows blood and water. That's the point of that text. So Moses, when the second time comes around, which is much later, when Moses, the second time, the people are grumbling because they do not have water, and God speaks to the rock. God says, you need to speak to the rock and it'll give you water. Moses struck it. He didn't strike it once. He struck it twice. And this thing displeased God because the rock is Christ. Christ can't be crucified twice. He can't be struck twice. One is to be a type and shadow of his crucifixion and his life-giving flow of, of blood and water from Christ's pure side because of the Roman spear. And the other one now is showing how Christ ruling and reigning. We pray to him and we ask him for what we need. Those are really kind of the big picture things going on here. It's not that Moses was impatient. It's that he showed that God wasn't holy because he struck the rock rather than obeyed God to speak to the rock and ask it for water. And so there's, there's so many things going on here in this text. But if you take Jesus out of the center of it, then you've lost the key to rightly interpret it. This isn't a story about Moses' impatience and him losing now the ability to have greatness in his purpose. This is a story about Christ and the proper way of dealing with him and how these texts all point us to the big exodus that you and I are a part of, which Christ is leading us out of slavery into the promised land of the new earth. That's really what's going on here. And Troy is completely oblivious to this level of understanding of the scriptures because he hasn't rightly studied, and he's clearly not acquainted with the writings of the church fathers who teach us how to see Christ in this text. So that goes to two points that you've made here. One, lack of training. Yep. He would have studied something like that had he been properly trained for the pastoral ministry. And number two is really kind of a question 
as a general rule, are we ever going to get these accounts right in the Old Testament if we do not see that they are there to show us Christ? No, <laughs> we will not. I always come back to the story of Christ on the day of his resurrection uh, appears to two of his disciples who are traveling to Emmaus. And he miraculously keeps them from being able to recognize who he is. And, of course, they're kind of sullen and downtrodden. And, you know, Jesus is asking him what they're talking about. And they look at Jesus like, well, are you the only guy that's been staying in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about the things going on? And, he's, and Jesus says, what things? He says, well, it's about Jesus of Nazareth. And then one of them, Cleopas, he says, and we had hoped that he would be the one who would redeem Israel. And, you know, I, I every time I read that text, I just crack up because it's like, that's exactly what Jesus did. He just redeemed all of Israel by bleeding and dying for the sins of the world on the cross and rising victorious from the grave, which means that Cleopas didn't understand the scriptures. And so Jesus rebukes them. Oh, slow of heart. You know, how long is it going to take you to understand the scriptures? And so Jesus then, beginning with Moses and the prophets, interprets to them all the things regarding himself. And this is a multi-hour walk. It's a seven-hour walk, and I'm sure things are slowing down at this time while Jesus is opening up the scriptures to them. And so for the next two to three hours, Jesus gives them a basics Bible study that shows these fellows that the Bible is all about Christ and the things that he would accomplish and the fact that it was necessary for him to bleed and die and then rise from the grave. It's all in that text. It's right there. And I think that becomes the seedbed then for the church's understanding of the Old Testament because moving forward then you'll note the apostles in the in the Gospels and even Paul in his epistles constantly are seeing Christ in the Old Testament. So a good way to think about it is, is that Jesus is the key that unlocks the Old Testament. If you don't turn the key, the Old Testament remains a locked text, and you do not get at a proper understanding of what it's about. What's our final cut from Troy Grambling? So Troy Grambling now is going to do something ironic. He's going to talk about the importance of having humility in pursuing greatness. And he, again, he's not going to see the direct connections to Christ as he works through kind of parts of 1 Samuel 16. Let's look at David, though, all right? Because we see David, he's the antithesis of this. Now, Samuel is going to secretly come to anoint the new king. Because if Saul finds out we're anointing a new king, well, it's not going to be pretty. And so he's kind of secretly coming in and God tells him to go to Jesse and Jesse's got all these boys and they line up. And, you know, the oldest one is impressive. He's tall, he's strong. And um, God says, well, it's not him. And he's like, you got any more? <laughs> Can you imagine if you were standing there? You're like, oh, you know. Yeah, well, the youngest boy's out taking care of the sheep, and they bring him in, and it's David. And look at what it says in 1613. It says, so David stood there among his brothers, and Samuel takes a flask of oil, and he anoints David with the oil, and the Spirit of the Lord comes powerfully upon David from that day on. In other words, in that moment, as a young man, David is anointed to be the future king to sit in the big chair, to live in the palace, to rule with authority. He's going to be the king. But watch what happens next in verse 21. Just a few verses later is, 
Is David sitting on the throne? Is he telling people what to do? Is he leading the army? No, it says, so David went to Saul because Saul didn't know that David had been anointed king. And does David go and tell Saul? No, what does it say? So David went to Saul and began, what's that next word? Serving him. He's playing the harp because Saul's dealing with anxiety. And so David goes to the castle or the, the palace, not to sit in the big chair, but to play the harp. He becomes his armor bearer. You know how much humility that must have took? How bad do you think David wanted to say, don't you know who I am? Did, did, you, not, um, did you not get the email? Did you not read the paper? Look in verse chapter 17. When the battle against the Philistines, which, you know, Goliath was a Philistine, when it takes off, David's brothers are in the battle. What does David do? He went back and forth so he could help his father with the sheep. He was being a shepherd. And I told you at Christmas that shepherds were on the very low rung of society. Nobody respected shepherds. And yet David, the future king, can you imagine, what would you have said to your dad? He said, hey, I want you to go out there and feed the sheep. Do you know who you're talking to, Dad? I'm the king. So what do you make of that, Chris? It, he's so close, and yet he's so far from actually finding Jesus in this text. So remember I just read Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was by nature God did not count equality with a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. The fact that David, his anointing, doesn't immediately catapult him to the throne, but instead he's serving the king and he's still being a shepherd and still being humble, exemplifies Christ in the incarnation. That's the whole point of this text, is that the parallels between David's story and the life of Christ are unmistakable when you put the two together and you overlay them. But here, what Troy is assuming is, is that this is an important step in achieving greatness. If you want to achieve the greatness of David, you too must be humble after you've learned what your purpose is. And it's, this, this has nothing to do with that. And I would note, David's anointing in 1 Samuel 16 is a parallel to Christ's baptism by John the Baptist. It says that when David was anointed, the Holy Spirit rushed upon him. When Christ was baptized, the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove and remained on him. And the voice of the Father said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Another thing that Trey also missed was the fact that Jesse had seven sons who were looked at by Samuel before David was brought in from the field to be anointed, which means David's the eighth son of Jesse. And that number is kind of pregnant with some important things because seven is like the number of this world and this creation. And the eighth day, the eighth is always kind of a pointing to the new creation. There's so many layers of meaning here. If you just put Christ into the center of it, the whole thing comes to life and you recognize the miraculousness of it. But you also realize it isn't about you. This isn't about finding the pattern that David used to achieve greatness. This is about finding Christ, who is King of kings and Lord of lords, who humbled himself, became nothing, was found in the form of a servant, and he became the servant of all so that you and I can be forgiven and reconciled to God and freed from our narcissistic tendency to want to be great in the center of attention. 
We are talking with Pastor Chris Rosebro, going through somewhat of megachurch Pastor Troy Gamerling has to say on the importance of pursuing greatness. On the other side, we'll get to a little bit more of what he has to say. Stay tuned. You can support the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. by purchasing a cell phone case from Crossway, crossweh.com slash LPR. You'll find cell phone cases for Issues Etc., Lutheran Public Radio, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, and Luther's Seal with the Reformation Solas, crossweh.com slash LPR. A percentage of your purchase will support Issues Etc., Cross weh.com slash LPR. Theology has consequences. It doesn't live just in ivory towers, but actually in the very choices and daily lives of God's people as they live out what they believe and confess in the world. To learn more about how theology affects our daily lives, this February issue of The Lutheran Witness discusses how the theology of Simonex affected the very lives of God's people in the LCMS and how God worked to preserve his church. Visit cph.org slash witness to subscribe. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. It's not about you. It's about Jesus for you. You're listening to Issues Etc. Christological. My friends, Jesus comes only for sinners. Historical. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by... Sacramental. Take and eat. This is the true body of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, given unto death for your sins. To find a Christological, historical, and sacramental church near you, go to issuesetc.org and click Find a Church. Issues, etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Pastor Chris Rosebro of Fighting for the Faith is our guest. We're going through some of what Pastor Troy Grambling has to say about greatness. Well, given the gospel that you articulated so beautifully before the break, it strikes me that if Christ is missing from Grambling's message, then that beautiful gospel is going to be missing too. Yeah, it really does. And you'll note that there is no gospel in this telling of the story of David because he doesn't see Christ there. Instead, now he's strip-mined this text and basically is looking for patterns that we need to follow, and he's created a series of checklist items that we need to do in our pursuit of greatness and make sure to follow these steps so that you can achieve it yourself. That's all law. It's not even good law. It's not even biblical law. It's just law, burdening people and saying, do these things and you'll achieve greatness. Oh, great. Well, thank you. But the greatness is not the thing I need. I need reconciliation with God. 
because I have sinned greatly against his commands. And as a result of him taking Jesus out of the text, what happens is he takes a text that clearly is pointing to the gospel and he turns it into just really bad, awful law. What is the danger of this kind of pre apart from the fact the considerable, really inestimable danger of removing Christ from the text, what's the danger of hearing this and then trying to go put it into practice? Number one, it ain't going to work. You'll note that uh, of the billions of people on the planet, few, I mean few, ever get to the point where everyone looks at them and says, yeah, that person was great. They have an exemplary life that stands out above everybody else. They made a difference that, that nobody else made. That Very, very few people do that. That's why history books are not infinitely voluminous. History books oftentimes will only cover certain events, certain people who did great things or ungreat things, and then kind of move on. And where's the rest of humanity? They're lost in the muddle, the muddle of the mundane life that we are all called to live as a result of falling into sin and the toil that God has given us as our lot in this life. And so what does the average person do? They get up, they go to work, they come home, they cook dinner, they do the dishes, they do the laundry, they clean the toilets, they take care of the kids, and then they do the same thing all over again, week after week, day after day, month after month, and they'll never be viewed by anybody as great. That's not the point of the Christian life. It's not the focus or even a goal that we're to pursue. We are to pursue the good works that we are created in Christ Jesus to do, which causes us to take on this mindset that is ours in Christ Jesus and to consider as others as more important than ourselves and get busy serving them with the love of God. That's what we're called to do. God will reward us for that because the one who exalts himself, Scripture says, will be humbled by God. The one who humbles himself, God will exalt. So you'll note that although the world doesn't know your name, God does, and he does reward the mundane good works that he has given you in Christ to do. Troy Gramling might respond, well, look at me. I used to be a parking lot attendant at a Baptist church, and now I'm Troy Gramling. I'm unimpressed <laughs> because those who have been trained properly to understand God's word can easily see through this message and say, this isn't Christianity. This is not biblical doctrine. This is self-inflated ego stuff. And I would note this falls into the category of doctrines of demons because the demons would love you to focus on yourself. The one thing the demons don't want you to do is find Christ in the scriptures because there's salvation in him, salvation from them as well. So how does Scripture, God's Word, define true greatness? According to Christ. <laughs> the greatest in the kingdom is the one who is the servant of all. And I would note, Jesus is the one who is the servant of all. And he is the great one. This is the why his name, God exalts the name of Christ above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, because Christ King of kings and Lord of lords, he became a servant, and he lived a perfect, sinless life for you, for me. He laid down his life willingly in order to bleed and suffer the consequences of God's wrath in your place so that you can be forgiven. Indeed, the greatest in the kingdom 
him is the one who is the servant of all, and that's Christ. And he's the one who defines greatness, not by ambition, but by self-sacrifice. With a minute, someone listening to us is in a church where they're hearing this kind of stuff every Sunday. What do you say to them? Leave. You're, you're being fed poison. You are being fed lies about God's Word. It's being twisted. And you are basically having the Scriptures turn into a mirror that you're supposed to look in so that you can see how great you are. But by taking Christ out of the center of the Scriptures and you not hearing these stories in light of how Christ fulfills these types and shadows leaves you in a maze of error in a maze of deception and deceit that you cannot see your way out of until you back up and say, this isn't right, and you go and you find a congregation where the pastor is rightly handling God's word, knows the proper distinction between God's law and the gospel, and he, from the pulpit every single Sunday, placards Christ and him crucified and risen from the grave for your sins, for your justification, for your redemption, and for your salvation every single Sunday, if you're not hearing that, you're being fed poison and being led down the wide path that leads to hell. Pastor Chris Rosebro is pastor of Consfinger Lutheran Church in Oslo, Minnesota, and he's creator and host of the YouTube channel Fighting for the Faith. Be sure to watch and bookmark Fighting for the Faith in 2024. You'll find a link at issuesetc.org. Click Talk on Demand Archives. Chris, thank you. Thank you, Todd. Issues Etc. has been brought to you in part this week by Luther Academy. Luther Academy serves Lutheran pastors to the ends of the earth through conferences, books, journals, and more. LutherAcademy.com, LutherAcademy.com. Next week on Issues Etc., we'll talk with Dr. Jordan Cooper about five proofs that Christ's true body and blood are present in the sacrament. We'll get a review of the movie Past Lives with Pastor Ted Geese, and we'll continue our Kids Have Questions series with Pastor Jonathan Connor. I'm Todd Wilkin. Go to church on Sunday. Thanks for listening to Issues Etc. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio.